Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 12. A Harsh Awakening On the 11th of May, 2000, I woke up in a flood of tears. It is the only time in my life when I've had the very strange experience of actually crying in my sleep. It was my 30th birthday, and while for some people 40 or 50 are the big birthdays that cause a midlife crisis, mine came at 30. I had returned from New York and was now living back in Auckland. I am 30, I recall thinking and I own nothing. I do not even own my own bed. Somehow for me at 30, owning my own bed was deeply symbolic. I think it had to do with independence or growing up or being an adult. It certainly also had something to do with financial security and having faith that I could earn a decent living one day. I remember a wonderful exhibition at a Wellington art gallery where I worked for a time as a volunteer in my 20s that was all about the important roles beds play in our lives as humans. It had a fascinating collection of white beds in the gallery space, and each exhibit represented a crucial moment in our lives. It started from the bed we are born into, to the marital bed, through to our sick bed, and ultimately to our very final bed, our deathbed. This exhibition, and the bed, has always stayed with me as a powerful image and piece of symbolism. At this point in my life, many of my friends were now buying houses, having children, settling down, and also earning really good wages with strong professional opportunities. I was not. My life looked very different to the conventional lives of many of my able-bodied friends. What was this about? There was another more esoteric and existential reason why 30 felt so significant and confronting for me. On an anarchic rock and roll or punk tangent, dying young, ideally before the age of 30, is a very real thing for many musicians, artists and thinkers. James Dean made it to only 24, while Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain from Nirvana and Jim Morrison from The Doors are just a handful of musicians that only made it as far as 27. Punks do not believe in living past the age of 30, Jesus Christ himself only got to his early thirties before his death, and somewhere deep inside me I had never imagined that I would live past the age of thirty. While I'm not directly comparing myself to Jesus, and I also did not have a major drug or alcohol addiction like some of these rock stars, dying by thirty had come to have a sort of youthful, romantic, fatalistic appeal. As well, perhaps more generously, I felt there was a deep symbolism or spiritual meaning to it. There was, however, most definitely something for me as a blind woman that was involved here. 
It was about the deep pain and exhaustion of living outside the conventional world and social structures. In truth, I had also still secretly hung on to my Japanese escape clause, that I could leave my life if things got to be too much. During this time in my life, I was certainly having regular ongoing bouts of deep anxiety and depression. It is important to note here that I have actually never felt sad or angry that I was born blind. I have only very occasionally wished I had perfect vision, and then only because I wanted to be able to read books and poetry at my whim. Reading other people's words, thoughts and reflections can provide deep comfort and solace when one is in despair. But at this time, accessing literature was still very difficult for me as a blind person. What has made me sad, and yes, angry at times, is that we as humans have repeatedly and often uncaringly, or even arrogantly, continued to design a world, economies, and societies that are still so deeply unaware of how to be with our disabled citizens. It can be very hard to face this truth on a daily basis. It can be very hard to encounter being actively disabled by the world. It takes superhuman strength at times to keep on believing in your worth and to keep on challenging the inequity of the situation. Some days, so much energy goes into simply overcoming rather than thriving or living fully. It is therefore both tempting and easy to become a martyr to the cause and to the struggle. In my experience, it takes huge self-awareness, as well as socio-political awareness, to first recognise and then resist this powerful downward pull. So when I woke up on my birthday, I was in shock. I was still here, and still very much alive, even if bedless. This posed a massive question for me. If I was in fact still alive, what was I going to do for the rest of my life? I had never been a person who had a five-year plan. I was lucky if I had a one-year plan. I certainly had never mapped out my life and identified key milestones I needed to hit along the way. In fact, I always hated those life coach-type exercises that assumed we have that much control over our lives. I preferred John Lennon's philosophy that life is what happens while you are making other plans. It just feels much more realistic. However. That said, perhaps I did need to now start thinking beyond the ripe old age of 30 and consider the possibility I just might be around for a bit longer after all. There was also another reason for the intense emotion I was feeling at this pivotal point in my life. In addition to the fact that I knew blind women were predicted to have very poor professional and therefore economic outcomes, I had also learned a lesson from watching my darling mother navigate parts of her life. I think mum was of a time and a generation of women who were brought up to believe a partner, usually a man, would provide. I watched mum make some interesting decisions for herself that, to my mind, did not set her up well financially long term. My parents' divorce all those years earlier certainly had not been equitable. I vowed I never wanted to be dependent on anyone for my financial security or future. I had to know I could take care of myself 100%. Mum had moved to live on Waiheke Island in 1993 after returning from an incredible overseas trip when at 50 she had left her job as a nurse, 
donned a backpack and headed off overseas, on her own, to travel through Asia and parts of the Middle East. On her return, after 18 incredible months away, 12 months of which she spent fulfilling her lifelong dream of living on a kibbutz in Israel, she sold her house in Palmerston North and bought a tiny little seaside batch on Waiheke Island for the grand sum of $45,000. Mum soon met and started a long relationship with a German filmmaker who was also now living on Waiheke. Gerd had come to New Zealand in the late 70s while still a student at the Berlin Film and TV School. Working closely with his friends at Vanguard Films in Wellington, he went on to make some of the more seminal documentaries about New Zealand working-class struggles and trade union battles. In association with Vanguard Films, he also produced Potu, the now-classic documentary about the 1981 Springbok tour, to be directed by his then-wife, Mirata Mita. Gerd had actually filmed Mum, one of the key anti-tour organisers in Palmerston North, giving a passionate speech on the day the Springboks played in Palmerston North. Little did they know then that they would be partners two decades later. Gerd had become deeply interested in the life and work of the well-known New Zealand poet James K. Baxter around the time he and Mum met on Waiheke. He spent the next 10 years or so researching and writing a script for a feature-length film about James Kay and his life. Mum started to work day and night with Gerd on his film and script after giving up her job on Waiheke running a local support home for people living with mental illness in the community. She did not ever return to actual paid work from that point onwards. Sadly, A large part of the reason Mum did not return to work was a deep lack of confidence in her ability to do so. This incredible, confident, brave woman lacked a sense of her own ability and her true worth. Mum has made living off virtually nothing an art form, and I hugely admire what she manages to do with so little. I also believe she has been massively influenced by strong Presbyterian roots and the lives of missionaries she was so exposed to. Money was not considered important when she was growing up. Idealism, Christian values, martyrdom, being of service to the world and the greater good was all that mattered. For me, idealism, making a social contribution and being of service are also very important. But being a martyr and being poor was not appealing, nor what I wanted for myself. I also knew I had some additional factors I needed to negotiate as a blind woman. While money on its own was never a motivator for me, I did want to find a way to make a healthy income doing something that deeply mattered to me. I guess in that sense I wanted to have my cake and eat it. I had become acutely aware as a woman that money meant power and choice. I also now knew that this was particularly true for me as a disabled woman. If I did not have money, I was going to be outrageously dependent on the state and on the goodwill and or the decisions of others. This would determine my future and what support I did or did not receive throughout my life. To me, it was an utterly unbearable thought. However, as I soon discovered, avoiding state or charitable dependence would prove to be far from straightforward. I had no idea just how entrenched structural inequality was in our economy. By the year 2000, there was one critical factor in particular that held the key to my future economic and employment success. The computer. 
It was now essential to have a computer if I wanted a well-paying white-collar job in New Zealand. It seems strange to think that there was a time where this was not the case. Computers and the digital environment are now so integrated into all areas of our work and life. But I now also see that I was part of what I am categorizing as the computer guinea pig generation, for blind computer users. We were very much the pioneers and the trailblazers. I believe many of us, the accessible tech guinea pigs, often still struggle today. The experience of accessing, acquiring, learning about and using accessible tech was an ad hoc process and often deeply devaluing and hugely emotionally damaging in many instances. To this very day, nothing brings me to my knees in a state of deep despair and utter frustration quite like issues with my computer. So let me try to explain what I am calling the accessible computer conundrum. Firstly, there is the issue of the cost. Most sighted or non-disabled people can purchase a decent computer and software that is designed to meet their needs for a couple of thousand dollars. For me as a blind person, my equivalent purchase would cost closer to $12,000. I certainly could not afford that, and in fact, who could? Secondly, there is the fact that most blind women become structurally poor and do not have lots of money because they are unable to get a well-paying job in the first place. This is especially the case if they are now in a catch-22, where they first need a computer to then get the job. In a positive attempt to create a more level playing field when it came to accessing this exorbitantly expensive equipment, the government made funding available to purchase the equipment. But the process for being assessed was often deeply humiliating, shame-inducing, and to my mind, utterly unbearable. Imagine. If you knew you needed a television, or perhaps a car, for example, but before you could purchase it, someone you did not know, or possibly respect, would assess whether you could purchase it, or even if you actually needed it, at all. To complicate matters further, in those days you actually had to be enrolled in education, or already have a job in order to apply for the computer. The assessment would sometimes take weeks, if not months, to be actioned, and either approved or declined, depending, it seemed, on the whim of whoever assessed you. For example, when I was working with Shirley at Point of View Productions, it was only thanks to her extraordinary goodwill that she was prepared to wait with me while we went through this painful process. For months, I was unable to do my job properly because the process of acquiring my essential technology was taking so long. Of course, in the meantime, I could not just jump onto someone else's computer. It meant I had absolutely nothing I could use to do my job. This is an experience I and many, many other blind people have undergone repeatedly throughout our professional lives. Thirdly, most companies, if they were designing accessible tech at all, were often in competition with one another and were not prioritizing what the blind end user might actually need. This resulted in incompatible technology that would constantly stop working. Thanks to the generosity of an old family friend who gifted me $10,000, I eventually acquired my first ever truly contemporary accessible computer equipment. I had two different software programs to enable me to use the computer in a way that worked best for me. These were JAWS and ZoomText. 
JAWS was a speech program that enabled the letters and words I typed into the computer to be read out loud in a distinctive Stephen Hawking-type computerized voice. ZoomText, on the other hand, was a magnification program that enabled me to enlarge the text on my screen to a size that I could see and use to orientate me on the screen. At this time, these programs were owned by separate companies and using them together, along with Word, often resulted in huge issues as they had not been designed to all work together. However, this was the best and pretty much the only option for me at the time. Then, fourthly, Due to the under-resourcing of support agencies, such as the Foundation for the Blind, there was only one very specialised person in the whole of Auckland who knew how to try and fix the assistive tech, if their schedule allowed. That same person was also the only staff member who had the skills to teach each individual blind person how to use the new technology and software. Fifthly, learning to use this combination of alternative tech was often deeply challenging. There were usually no other colleagues you could discuss the issues with, as you might if you were just using mainstream software, alongside, for example, other word users in your office. You were very much on your own. It was also usually impossible to rely on an IT department to offer you support, as no one in mainstream IT departments knew the first thing about supporting assistive technology. Standard IT staff also often made matters worse, with well-intentioned attempts at fixing or connecting your specialised system to the organisation's wider internet or IT network. I have regularly gone months without being able to use a computer while different people try to sort out the issues. Sixthly, there is the vast array of websites and other software programmes and apps that are designed in such a way that blind people cannot access them. In other words, businesses, government and community organisations are making little to no effort to ensure that their digital house is in order, that their website, products and services are designed in a way that welcome diverse users, including blind users. Even today in 2022, this is a major issue. This is one area in particular where I think legislation could make a significant difference. Finally, This all then means that as the blind person, you risk being perceived, through no fault of your own, as difficult, a burden, a problem, and as someone who is underperforming in the workplace. It can also mean a sense of deep frustration and a feeling of being regularly thwarted from performing. This robs people of a sense of professional achievement and self-worth. It can have very long-lasting effects on a person's self-esteem and sense of value. This dreadful feeling is even further exacerbated at times of crisis, such as during poor health, or a national crisis such as the COVID pandemic. At such times, the stakes are even higher than usual, and accessing the digital world can actually be a matter of life and death. One of the most powerful and tangible examples I have ever seen of how we can design talented people out of the economy and prevent them from performing to their best ability was the 2016 film Hidden Figures, which was about a group of black women mathematicians at NASA during the early stages of the space program. As the only woman in an elite team of male mathematicians, Catherine has to run 800 metres to the opposite side of the massive compound every time she needs to go to the bathroom. 
There is no woman's toilet in her building. The perception is that she is not pulling her weight, as she has to disappear at crucial moments to visit the loo. Quite simply put, she is disabled by the male-centric design of the environment. It has been designed to make her fail. Once a toilet is made available, she absolutely excels and helps transform the space program forever. The cost or benefit of accessible design is that simple. It is a choice we make every time we design anything in our world today. We are either deciding to design blind people in, or we are choosing to design them out. So, although very far from being perfect, by the year 2000, computer technology had still come a long way in terms of accessibility for blind people. I think back to some of the early prototypes my lovely ophthalmologist trialled with me in the early 1980s. Now, most blind people, including myself, can now, at least in theory, access specialised computer software and hardware. With my imperfect computer at my side, I now had one of the critical keys to my economic future. I was doing my best to equip myself for success and to resist the potent economic forces that can all too often keep blind women down and out. I now needed to find a steady, regular-paying job of some sort for myself. I also realised that I wanted to play a different professional role in my life. I wanted to see if I could directly influence change on the ground with people, rather than being the one who told the stories about people. I wanted to be more hands-on. I was now deeply fascinated by the twin concepts of community and economic development. And then one day, my dear friend, the wonderful Diana Murray from AUT, told me about an ad for a new role at the Auckland City Council. They were seeking someone who could become the first ever local government disability advisor. It was a short-term part-time position. As I could not read the size 10 font job description, JD, myself, mum had come over from Waiheke Island to my flat in Auckland to read the JD to me. I had sudden flashbacks to when she used to read my university books for me. As she has a deep dislike of bureaucracy and process, it took superhuman strength on both our parts to get through the JD. It was full of council jargon. She kept on gasping and choking with every word or bit of terminology that grated for her. I, on the other hand, had to keep reminding her that her job was simply to be my eyes. I did not require her running commentary or interpretation of the content. This, just by the way, would have been an impossible ask for my darling mother. I applied for the role, and to my surprise, I got it. Of course, I had no idea that what was starting off as a very casual six-month, part-time contract role would end up lasting 10 years of my life. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Minnie B.